on ABC Radio. This is The Big Fish with Scott Levi. Ahoy there, welcome aboard another episode of The Big Fish. And our first cast is with Joe Starling, who's been catching stream trout. Before you say she's broken the rules, fishing when the season hasn't started, she jumped across the border to uh, catch some fish on the Victorian side because they opened the season a month early. We'll find out how it's going to give you a bit of a taste of the season to come here in New South Wales. That's our first cast on the big fish and the big news out of the Northern Territory that more women are now fishing than men. I know they're not native, but so many of you love fly fishing for trout, and there's just something so magical about it here in Australia. Down in the high country, nature all around, platypus and echidna, and even the feral deer are quite uh, quite exciting to see. Uh, Joe Starling is just back from jumping the trout season gun, because our trout season here in New South Wales doesn't open until the October long weekend. Uh, it's a very important date in my diary, but of course, if you jump across the border... For our listeners in the southwest slopes of Riverina and Snowy Mountains area, which is just in some cases a hop, step and a jump, you can get stuck into it a month early. And Joe's fanatical about it, fly fishing, and she's done just that, jumped the gun when it comes to trout fishing. Good morning, Joe Starling. Oh, good morning, Scott. Good morning, everyone. It is good fun, isn't it, getting down to Victoria. You get that uh, early mark, even though sometimes the streams are very cold after they've had a lot of snow, but... Uh, where did you go and how did you go? We went to, we had the invitation to go and visit a um, brand new trout lodge um, and what a place it is too. It's, it's five rivers fly fishing. It's got the Haukwa. It's on the Goulburn, like literally you step out the back door and there's the Goulburn River, um, the Jamison River, the Delatite and the King. The King's a little further. Oh, right. the King's a beauty too. Gee, they're good rivers. They're all part of the Goulburn system, aren't they? Yes, they are. And it's just it's it, it's above Ilden, so it's all um, water sort of finding their way towards Lake Ilden. So pretty, so very very pretty. And um, we weren't all that fortunate with the weather. I mean, what is going on with the weather these days? We were tracking at you know synoptic charts for ten days out and watching this great high coming across, and we thought, yes, we've got the timing right; it's going to be perfect. And then Antarctica spat out <laughs> horrible, horrible system, and where to come? It came straight up and whacked us. I mean, we all got fish. It was just delightful. And what I will say, because um, you know we love the ovens and um, the Buckland and all of those sorts of. Um, uh, rivers and streams around the bright area as well. But I found these ones to be that much easier um, access because there doesn't seem to be as big a um, blackberry infestation on, on that particular area. So um, with a brand new set of 
waders, that's a really good thing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They cost so much a decent set of breathable waders these days. We're talking about jumping the fly fishing gun. Of course, the Victorian season opens at the start of September. New South Wales, all the fly fishers are, are lined up at the starting line ready to hit the streams. We're talking about the river season, of course. I like some of those streams too. They're, they're easier to wade than some of the streams that have got big boulders, you know, the, 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 particularly around um, uh, Corriong. The Nariel is one with that nice gravelly sort of easy to wade water. Uh, it's, it's a favourite of mine. We've been going down there to start the season for, for many, many years. And uh, sometimes it's a, it can be absolutely fantastic and other times the water can be really cold. So um, I guess having so many different rivers there at the, the five rivers uh, set up, uh, you can take your pick. Which, which was the best one? Um, we found the Jamison was gorgeous. What was happening because we were getting the, all those um, rain and thunderstorms coming in um, and you would make a decision based on what the colour of the water was in the Goulburn when you looked outside <laughs> the window, the, the back door. Um, of the morning, if the Goulburn had coloured up, we'd go and fish on the Jamison. And generally, if that was on a, a slightly different catchment. And that worked really, really well. Um, or we just headed further upstream. We got the... Um, oh, they were all um, fishing quite well. Um, could have been better. Of course, fishing can always be better. And the fish weren't overly big. They um, probably... 40 centimetres that were pulling them up. But um, browns and rainbows, and uh, it was more about chasing the clearer water for us than the temperature. I mean, it was it was still freezing. Um, yeah, yeah. Main, mainly but, nymphing, Joe. Yeah, yeah. I had one come up. I had, um, I had a um, dry dropper, and I had one come up and slash at the dry, but um, there wasn't much insect life going on so um, I was doing a combination of um, euro-nymphing I was carrying two rods at a time in, in practice for the Australian Championships coming up so I had you know just working on my um, my techniques of casting around a rod stuck down the front of your waders out in the middle of the river <laughs> so, you could, so you could take advantage of whatever whatever you saw but um, yeah I, I basically caught everything on the nymph Plenty of water in the rivers, Joe. There was, in fact, the rivers were running really hard. Um, so I also got some really strong wading practice. Like I'm talking so hard that I got rolled over twice. That was <laughs> great. Old and um, and uh, the whole, you know, leaning forward whilst you, you know, up to your waist in um, in fast flowing water and and um, leaning in a lunging position so that you could stay standing. It was pretty intense. <laughs> ABC, it's the big fish with Joe Starling, who's just back from jumping the trout fishing gun. Of course, uh, the season opens on the October long weekend in New South Wales, but at the start of September in Victoria, and she's just been on the five rivers down at the Jamison. Of course, the mighty Goulburn, the Hauqua, the King, uh, the Delatite, they're all gorgeous, gorgeous rivers and tributaries of the Goulburn system. And of course, if if they're all washed out above Eildon. You've got clear water usually below Eildon um, due to the fact that it's it's a tail race, that uh, yep. it just depends on how much water's being let out for the the irrigators down towards Shepparton. Um, did you have a look at the Goulburn as well? No. They, we stayed up upstream because um, uh, it's quite a drive around to the other side. 
So um, we were on the Mansfield side of, of the lake. Um, but there was so much water to fish, Scott. Um, it, we, uh, we didn't even look at the lake. There was no need. It was fantastic. Oh, just, well, that is an option if, if it's, uh, you know, been a massive storm up in the mountains and all the rivers are running with, with mud up, up above because that yes. filters them, doesn't it? That, that tail races. And oftentimes they're good really early season because once the summer irrigation starts, rivers like the Tumut and the, the Swampy Plains, the Upper Murray, um, they get too full, don't they? The Goulburn as well. So um, that's a, an option if the streams are, are washed out. It's a lovely part of the world too, isn't it? I mean, it's got, um, you know, so much going for it. Oh, I agree with you totally. We were in love with... Um Bright, still are in love with Bright as a as a lovely little place. Um, made the news for all the wrong reasons with Airbnb lately, but um, oh, I think we may have we may have just found a new favourite spot. To be perfectly honest, little um, Jamison there is I reckon must be what Bright was thirty years ago. It's just divine. Yeah, that's great and uh, lovely. Lovely to hear that someone's been catching a few. We're all excited about the opening of the the river season, and you featured on the program last week because of those fantastic statistics coming out of the Northern Territory. And now I'm sort of getting a bit of an idea um, about some of your goals uh, with the Women's Recreational Fishing League. Uh, it was very good to go back uh, about 10 years and uh, talk to you about fishing in the secret women's business uh, Barra tournament. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's all I, – I can understand your plan now. T- take us through it. Yes, well, um, for – those who haven't um, heard my story before, I actually grew up in Darwin. And as a young packer, I was, you know, we were a camping family. And, um, but I, I did grow up in a family that had fairly strong, old-fashioned um, gender roles. And so my brothers would be taken out fishing by my dad and my uncles and all that, and I'd be left back at camp with the girls. And I seriously cannot remember what we did. Um, I remember all the tales that my brothers um, came back with and regaled me with, but um, I've got no recollection of of my own activities, so to speak. And so um, perhaps looking back, there was um, always going to be that tendency for me to become a fisher. I just didn't know any different as a young girl. Um, Then I I got into fishing really quite late. I, I didn't start fishing myself until I was in my 30s. Um, and fell in love immediately. The, the, the bug bit really, very diff- really, really hard straight away, and, and it was through the women's comp. So my first women's comp was um, I was invited to fish on a team in the Real Women's, which was started by Emma Cartwright and was, I, I believe, the first um, all-women's tournament up there. But Emma... Emma had uh, allowed, and still to this day allows, male skippers, um, and you can book a guide to drive your boat and all of those sorts of things. So, and I had a great time. It was fantastic. Um, the following year, my uh, sister's-in-law said, well, if you're going to get into fishing, why don't you join our all-women's fishing team and we'll go and fish secret women's business. It's a new thing that started up. So what it was, was a couple of girls who had been fishing the real women, Joe and Mel, they decided to um, that if, if, if the intention was to empower women or to push women to become self-sufficient anglers, then having the male skippers was standing in the road. That was counterproductive. So they decided to 
start their own little comp and it was just a group of girls. Um, I got involved in the second year. So the first year, um, I think there were 11 votes and they they um, did it on Corroboree Billabong, which is where Secret Women's Business is to this day. And, um, and they got it started, but no men allowed. And they even had it that there were no men, you couldn't have them call you, they couldn't be on the river at the same time. You know, it was like, no, you've got to learn to do this yourself. Anyway, the second year it was much bigger and that's when um, my sisters took me along. And at this point in time, Scott, we were camping on the, the riverbank in Buffalo Warren, uh, Wallows. <laughs> Buffalo Wallows, right? It was... Um, <laughs> Pretty it was rough very, and ready. <laughs> really rough and ready and very rudimentary. And it happened like that for a very long time until the girls both um, got married and got to a year and they were both having babies in the same year and thought, we can't do this. And... Um, by this stage, we were all really organised. We were um, hiring the houseboats and, you know, teams were, instead of setting up camp, we were sleeping in luxury on the houseboats and um, and things like that. You can't do that anymore because they reckon that that um, um, gives people an advantage. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, but we don't camp in the buffalo wallows either anymore. It's all held <laughs> at the, the Corroboree Tavern. But um, so... It was either going to fold or someone had to step up. So one of the teams, they were called the Smash Crabs from memory. They The Smashed Crabs. The Smashed Crabs, yep. They used to share the houseboat with our team. We were um, Sister Act. And um, they, two of the ladies from Smash Crabs um, took decided to take it on. And the big challenge was, do, if we do this, it means we can't fish it. And they were like, ah. If it folded, they weren't going to fish it anyway. So to this day, Chris Noble, um, who was one of those ladies, um, still runs it. She does it entirely on her own with the, uh, as a coordinator and is just an astounding woman. But um, that, that's how that all happened. And uh, so with the intention that the women, it, it forced the women to do everything themselves. Yeah, it's a great initiative, and really everyone who knows, everyone who's a trolled for Big Barra knows that driving the boat is is well over 50% of the, the equation. We're speaking with Joe Starling, who, of course, has started the, the Women's Recreational Fishing League, which has gone national. She's been a, a long-time competitor in the Secret Women's uh, Barra uh, competition, a Secret Women's Business Barra competition, or Barra Challenge, uh, which has been going for 17 years now, and the the news came out last week that uh, running counter to trends across the rest of the country, 33% of women fish recreationally in the Northern Territory compared to 32% of men. Uh, this is uh, data that's coming out of the Fisheries Research and Development Corporation in Northern Territory. And you sort of knew this was the trend, didn't you, when you set up a, a goal to have uh, 50-50 by 50 through the Women's Recreational Fishing League. Is that right? That's right. So our state admission is 50-50 is by 20-50, and that is to achieve um, participation parity across the genders um, in recreational fishing. And I knew it was, it was possible. We chose 20-50 because a generation is 25 years. It's generally accepted as a generation. And so essentially 25, one generation from now is 20-50. And, of course, I was in Darwin for 38 years, and um, it's true, I am older than 38. Um, and the, um, 
the timing that, as I explained to you, uh, when I was a kid, the women generally, you know, very few women fished. And by the time I left, I mean, in my in my brother's household, my sister-in-law has her own boat and he has his own boat. Just so because in, in case they want to fish a different style or a different river on any given time. Um, and that, that's not unusual. In fact, I found that when I, by the time I left Darwin, which was in 2012, it was more a matter of if the women didn't fish because they chosen not to. It wasn't through lack of opportunity. Mm, that's um, great, isn't it? And you also started a thing called the Bar Apprentice that was inspired by the Secret Women's Business Barrow Challenge, uh, yes. you know, and the wonderful Nadia Taylor, who's been on 702 uh, ABC Sydney talking to, uh, you know, the, the, the mainstream presenters. Uh, uh, you know, there's this fascination now about fishing that, that women are really starting to gain parity. Um, and Nadia's been, I know she's been a bit crook, and I know both of us are, have been checking in on her and wishing her well because I want her back on the air. She's so yeah. good, and you, you picked such a great um, apprentice there, and she learns, has learnt so much and now is a, a leader in her own right and a, a great media performer too. I mean, it's just so lovely how um, you've been able to tap into this momentum that the Northern Territory has uh, created. Well, it is, and it's really what's... Um really buoying me at the moment too is that um, the the Bar Apprentice was a program um, my friend Vicky and I developed once I moved down just to stay connected with the SWB and introduce one by one women down here to the whole concept of tournament fishing and that self-reliance and empowerment that comes out of being able to manage all of those traditionally male um that male dominion on on your own as a capable human because there's there's no reason why we can't and so we were just taking one up at a time per year and um until the year that we won which was the year before nadia came up and um and um of course that set the tongues waggling down here that we need something like swb um, Which is uh, not Sonny Boy Williamson. It's a... No, no, no. <laughs> what they call it. Um, the, the Secret it's... Women's Business Barra uh, Challenge, yes. And and then the, the Women's Recreational Fishing League has, has, has come out of that. That's correct. So after we did the Barra Apprentice for, um, we ran seven Barra Apprentices across 10 years because, of course, we had um, COVID and all of those sorts of things. And in that time, basically, we developed a training program we got it down fairly, looks pretty well down pat. And so now, um, because of the demand to do more than one woman um, per year, naturally, we had to find a way that we could reach more. And so those that whole concept has now come into the WRSL's um, fishing clinics and the things that we do and, and just fast-tracking women who decide they want to take fishing on as a sport and a lifestyle. We fast-track them through often hard to attain um, skill set that's at the beginning and get them on that um, on the uh, steeper learning curve quicker. Yeah, and people can jump on. There's a, a helpline for addicted women fisher pe- people. Uh, <laughs> it's their, their messenger site. is so beautiful and just so much great information shared in such a, a, a non-egotistical way. You know, it's always the way on the men's sites. Uh, you say, oh, does anyone know about something? So, oh, you don't know how to do that knot. Or you, 
wow, you know, that's not very big. Or, uh, you yeah. know what I mean? It's just such a different attitude that women have. It's more about, um, sure, they're competitive and sure they catch big fish, but it's far more about sharing rather than boasting. Oh, most definitely. There's nothing going to come out of, um, out of competing. There's everything that you can get out of collaboration. And um, I, I, I just would, anyone who gets possessive of their knowledge or their, um, or their skill set or anything needs to really have a think about where they got it from. Someone shared it with them. And then they've gone and they've built upon something that they learned from somebody else and turned it into their own. And the skills that they've learned in that space um, make the, that their skills. But if they were to share that information with somebody else, welcome somebody else into our incredibly um, positive pastime, they could put that person right next to them on the same spot, basically, on the same snag, give them the same rod, the same lures, everything exactly the same, tell them what they're doing, and that newcomer is not going to be able to replicate the touch that they have. There is, no, there is nothing to gain from being secretive and possessive. There is everything to gain from welcoming more people into our sport. No, it's um, great. And if people go to the WRFL website, they can jump on and take part in some of the, the events that are, that are teed up or just uh, join the community and, and learn more about about fishing in a, a non-sort of uh, egotistical way. Joe, it's always great to catch up with you. Thanks again for joining us on, on The Big Fish and thanks for whetting our appetite for the upcoming uh, stream fly fishing season in New South Wales. Yes, it's a great one. You can be still hanging there for us and still fishing really well, so I'm champing at the bit to get back up. Yeah, I think it's going to be a, a, another good year. You know, it's been three sensational years, and I know it's going into a hot summer, but uh, the water's cold and there's plenty of it, so it could be another bumper uh, trout fishing year. They're everywhere, those feral trout. Good to talk to you. But, yeah, great to talk to you too. You have yourself a great day. Joe Starling there on The Big Fish. And we couldn't head into the official opening of the trout season on the big fish without playing this. Good old Blue. He's gone up to the big stream in the sky, but it's a bit of fun. And, uh, well, really does describe those obsessive men and women now who love fly fishing. Tonight I'd like to talk about those anglers who fish for trout. These men with habits quite perverse, they lie, of course, but even worse, they leave their homes, their kids, their spouses, don a silly pair of trousers, known as waders, funny vests with 50 pockets round their chests. On their heads they put a hat, if a man could call it that. No thought at all of how it looks, old and dirty, filled with hooks. They take a pair of dirty socks, a basket, little plastic box, in the early hours of morn, pack the car, and then they're gone. They drive to some deserted river, cold enough to make them shiver, and in that stream they stand about hoping to secure a trout. At warmth and comfort they will scoff, unless their bits are freezing off. Unless they suffer quite a bit, they say they're not enjoying it. And then they start to act quite odd, concentrating on their rod and always playing with their fly, whether it be wet or dry is part of some strange ritual with customs quite habitual. They chant the angler's catechism, holy into masochism, hare's ear, nymph and greenwell's glory, red take tups and some too gory to ever mention right out loud, 
unless you're with an angling crowd. Trout fishing does have bad effects on the angler's view of sex. That may be why he seeks to tie something called a Spanish fly. Now I recall some indication of a different connotation that I heard a long way back as an aphrodisiac. An angler's wife, says one with force, cannot expect much intercourse. With women, anglers aren't at ease. They show a deal more expertise at playing with their rod and fly. It doesn't do much good to sigh when your husband's only wish is to stuff and mount a fish. Now this technique may be of use. If you're wanting to seduce an angling husband who's obsessed with flies and rods and hook line vest, stick a fish hook in your lip. He'll take one look at you and flip and give a little extra wiggle. Remember that you mustn't giggle. What seems to me to make no sense is men with some intelligence subject themselves to such abuse. Do they do it to amuse? No, I do not believe they do. On trying to think this subject through, I have come to realise they just like playing with their flies. Stinker, up next on The Big Fish. The Big Fish with Scott Levi on ABC Radio. Stinker with his fishing tips Some hot advice For your fishing trip Where to find him What's the bait Are you catching any mate Morning Stinker Hey g'day Scott how you going tonight I'm pretty well as as we know you're you're a primitive When it comes to fishing <laughs> But very very effective And you're listening to the number one fishing podcast in the land uh, The Big Fish <laughs> last week and uh, heard us discussing the live scope uh, a bit of kit that shows you the underwater world as never before you can see every scale on the fish you can see their fins you can see the structure if there's a tree in an impoundment with a snag you know with bass on it or or barramundi or or sooty grunty you can actually see the limbs of the tree and the fish sticking close to the the cover Uh, and it would cost I reckon one of those would cost as much as your boat, your motor, and all of your gear. Stink pot and the little motor that you go out to catch the snapper in. It cost probably twice as much, actually, because I've seen your boat. <laughs> well, technology, you see. Um, look, really, it's advanced to such a, a rate that it's not become fishing anymore. In my uh, definition of fishing, it's man versus fish. That's what I think that it is. Um, but now it's man plus advanced technology versus poor old fish. Now, now really, if you look at the uh, atlas of man or the tree on which uh, we have evolved, and supposedly the smartest creature on earth, which is debatable, but uh, we're the number one apex predator right up the top we are. That's where humans are. Fish are pretty much only halfway up the tree, which means we're supposed to be smarter than fish. Well, um, in in lots of cases, I don't think that's true. <laughs> I reckon there's a lot of fish that are smarter than, than humans. And for humans to try and catch up to these fish, uh, it's an admission. In my opinion, the more technology that you have on your boat as it is an admission that you're not as smart as the fish. Fish. <laughs> and really, I haven't come to that conclusion about myself yet, and I hope I do not. But 
I admire fishers that actually gut, use their own brains, you see. No one's really considered that. But use your own brains and knowledge of the environment to go and discover where fish may well be. Don't use anything fancy. Use what's between your ears. And then work out where the fish are and then how to catch them. I mean, I try, well, I, I don't um, purposefully try, but I don't, I haven't got a sounder and I haven't got a GPS. Well, actually, I have got a GPS, but I don't know how to use it. <laughs> so it's covered in dust. Um, so really, um, when I, and I take great, great pride in finding a spot where fish are under my own resources by just thinking like a fish. It's interesting too, isn't it? We we berate the the next generation coming up, the kids, for locking themselves in their rooms and playing video games or having their heads down on their phones and and walking into walls all the time. And you say, look at the environment, look at the beautiful world we're in, look at the the, the ocean and the power of the waves and the whales and the seals and the dolphins. And uh, here we are out in the boat, head down, looking at a screen all day. Oh, not me. But I, I'll tell you one interesting thing happened some years ago, Scott, when I was doing research for a book of mine on Broughton Island, and I spoke to an old, rec, old commercial fisher, and uh, he was a kid as a 13-year-old. He was a commercial fisherman way back in the 1930s and 40s. George Todd was his name. Unfortunately, sadly, he's passed on. But I spent hours and hours listening to this man, uh, how he caught massive snapper with a 80-pound line and, and a 12-0 hook and, and all this sort of stuff. But what he, I asked him, because he used to go to Broughton Island and catch fish and, of course, lobsters, and I said, how did you know in those early days where the reefs were and how to you know where to catch fish. No one, there were no nothing on the internet. There was you know nothing, absolutely no maps, no maps, nothing at all. How did you know where to catch fish? He said, well, obviously we knew that the fish lived on the reef. So what we had to do was discover where the reefs are. So how did you do that? Well, what they did, they put down a lead. Um, this is on a really old chug a chug boat. And, and they drifted for days and days until they, the lead on the bottom hit rock because there's a lot of sand out there. So when it hit rock, they would then um, drift over the roof and they could tell how, whether it was peaky or flat rock. So you don't you don't catch many fish on flat rock. You always catch them on sharp rock. Well, they all worked that out. And as soon as they found these um, really jagged reefs, that was an assumption that snapper would be there. So as soon as they hit it, they would take um, a visual, uh, just a sight of what was 90 degrees. There, there was a mountain and a tree there and a mountain over there and what and everything else. So that was their mark. Their mark was in their head as to where that reef was. And they take it one step further in that they had a big pipe. And in the pipe, they'd put plasticine in. So then they'd drop it to the bottom. And so the plasticine would hit what was on the bottom, whether it be gravel or, or jagged rock or whatever else. Then they'd pull it up and inspect what was on the plasticine. So this was how they figured out where fish were. So, you know, I give great credit 
to them using their brains to find fish rather than going out like a robot and just plugging it in. I don't, you know, I just couldn't do that. I couldn't do it because it takes away all the challenge of trying to catch a fish. It's the big fish, and we're with uh, Stinker, who's rejecting this uh, live scope technology that was uh, the controversy on the program last week, and uh, it, it looks a little unfair to to the fish. What I loved about fishing with my grandfather, who was of that generation you're talking about, was we'd go out on Lake Macquarie, he'd row us out, and I was just a kid, and he'd row us all the way out, and then he'd write, drop the front kelly, and then he'd drop the back kelly, and he'd tighten up, at a reef called the Lemon Tree out in Fennels Bay in deep water, and he did what you did. He had um, a tree, which was a lemon tree, and then a, a pylon of the bridge, and he did that triangulation, and he knew exactly where that reef was, and it was it was like magic, and it was knowledge that he had, knowledge that he earned rather than bought, bought, bought with a, a bit of high texture. That's exactly what I'm saying about. Earn your knowledge, don't buy your knowledge. Um, you know, I mean, it's the same with golf. You've got to get out there and hit balls, hit balls, hit balls if you're going to improve on golf. By reading it and getting uh, all the fancy things, it's not going to make you a better golf. You've got to get out there and give it a shot. But, oh, no, look, I'm, I'm like you said, I'm primitive. I'm a, I'm a dinosaur. Um, I only catch what I want to eat, and I don't bother fish any other way. So, um, yeah, look, I, I'm not saying that there's more to fishing than that, I know. But that's what I think fishing is. I think fishing, and I always have. All my life, fishing has been uh, something to feed the family. And if you go, what, what you know, back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, fish was has been a very, very vital past, part of the diet. And all the fishermen I knew at Tweed Heads and, and at Nelson Bay ever since, they catch fish to eat um, as part of their diet. Uh, and they're very fortunate to be able to do that because then you don't have to go and buy it. And the price of fish now is extraordinary. When you're paying seventy or eighty dollars for flathead fillets, you think heavens above. You know? <laughs> yeah. So we're lucky that we can go and catch a flathead. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting you mentioned you know finding the golf swing, which is uh, like finding fish as, as a quest for many people. Uh, on a Saturday morning, you know, there'd be a few golfers already probably getting ready to hit the range and uh, get ready for their obsessive game. Lots of women, lots of men. Um, it's, a, it's a great pastime. But they asked the great Ben Hogan where he found what they thought of the, in the day, the perfect golf swing. And he said, it's in the dirt. And they said, what do, you, what do you mean it's in the dirt? He said, it's in the dirt. You've got to dig it out. In other words, of course, we were saying you've got to hit enough golf balls, get enough blisters to, to work it out for yourself. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Look, another thing that old George told me, he said that there used to be coastal traders, boats, that would travel from Sydney to Foster and Port Macquarie. And like I said, I'm going back to the 1940s. And it, he would watch them go past. And occasionally they would stop. And they're not now. I don't quite know how they knew where the reefs were, but they did. And when they stopped, the, all the crew would get over the side of the boat, hang over the side of the boat with their hand lines, and start pulling up snapper. And so George would motor out there and get a, um, a view 
again, on trees and mountains, where the place where these boats stopped. So all the reefs that you'll see on the internet around Broughton Island were all discovered years and years ago by the most primitive of methods. Because now, of course, you can get 3D vision of it, which is just extraordinary, and I've seen it. And, uh, mm. But it only confirms, it only confirms what the old guys found with their bit of string and a lump of lead. And, and they're the ones that I really admire, rather than someone who buys all this fancy stuff, plugs it in, off you go, drop it. You know, oh, no, that's not... <laughs> Hey, people are still doing that too. The bulk carriers that take the coal out of the port of Newcastle, the Japanese crews used to um, uh, document the capture of their fish, big flathead giant snapper, by putting a piece of rice paper over the top and then taking a um, a drawing of it, making a beautiful piece of art of it rather than taking a photo. And and you could come up behind those bulk carriers and, uh, you know, they'd hold them up with pride, show you this what what would be a beautiful wall hanging of a big snapper that they caught over the the side of the boat? So it's it's still happening, stinker. And anything biting, mate? Have you heard anything uh, from the the grapevine? I know you write that very very popular column that you've been writing for how long? Thirty years. Yeah, closer to forty. Yeah, closer yeah. to the forty. Anyone catching anything, mate? Oh look, it, it, it the fishing has been absolutely fantastic lately, Scott. Uh, and people ask me because they they ask me thinking that I'm going to say, oh, the fishing is not like it used to be. Well, they get a rather a bit of a surprise when I'll say, look, the fishing is, is fantastic. With a snapper particularly, uh, the best catches I've ever heard in those 40 years of fishing around from Fingal to Broughton Island has been in the last six weeks. Yeah. That's great. And that's yeah. Isn't that fantastic? And, I mean, I keep my finger on the pulse. And if there's anything that upsets me, um, I'm, I'm the first to jump and try and find out what the answer is. Um, but you've got to know when you're happy. And I'm real happy because the fish and the salmon, oh, man, the amount of salmon that's gone past in the last month or so, and, and tuna, they're jumping all over the joint. Uh, it looks... I'm so pleased that the, the surface of the water is alive, not not only with, with uh, predatory fish, but, of course, with bait fish. Um, and inside the harbour, well, the flathead are just starting to um, show up. And, of course, the whiting are sneaking onto the beaches. The brim are here all year round. Oh, I'm just... Um, I'm happy that I'm happy. <laughs> Look, I think uh, when when people worry about the technology and its impact on fish stocks too, the one great thing about rod and line fishing, it's very manageable. You know, if we do see an, uh, that it's having an impact, then we need to do things that make it sustainable. And, and, I, and I, you're not going to like this, but I was watching a guy on YouTube the other day up around Pummerstone Passage, which is great flathead country up there on the Sunshine Coast, those giant sand flats, clear water sand flats like Nelson Bay, uh, beautiful blue water like Nelson Bay and he had a little drone up and he was spotting the flathead and then he's throwing lures oh. to catch them and letting them oh. go but I think those, if you you are catching too many because of technology then you've got to let them go as well but of course that's not your philosophy is it you know your philosophy is catch a feed and stop fishing yeah yeah of course and really a feed all depends I mean if you've got a huge family well you probably need a few more fish but I think that bag limits are more than fair. 
in this state. I think they're more very generous, this. don't you think the bag limits are very oh, I generous? Do. I do think they're they're more than generous. I mean, um, a bloke two doors from me the other day, he caught ten snapper around that would average five kilo. So now there's um, what's that fifty kg of snapper. Now you don't need that much, but the big uh, bag limits let him do that. Um, so really, you've got to be um, to have a bit of self control and think. Like, I mean, I went out the other day. I could have filled the boat with snapper. I caught four, and really, that's more than I needed two. I should really have only kept two because they were up to eight kilo. Beautiful, beautiful snapper. But it's, it's why they were biting like crazy. I had a heap of bait. I'd only been there for a little over an hour, and I thought, well, that's it. I'm going home. Um, yeah, yeah, the, old, the, old say, the old saying, stick a limit, you catch, don't catch a limit. Well, but, you know, that, that's so true. But I think we've got to start looking rather forward with technology. Go backwards and actually challenge the fish. Throw all the stuff that you got out that you paid a heap of dollars for. I mean, you can keep an outboard motor. Keep that because I've got one of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'll just I justify my high tech because I've got an outboard motor. Um, but uh, just um, test yourself against the fish. Don't test technology against the fish because anybody can do that but just see how good you really are by relying on your ability now that on your own personal ability um and that that's my uh, philosophy for this week all right well so you we're not going to go all the way and make you row everywhere you (laughs) keep your little motor (laughs) you know that that's how i started and that's how a lot of people start and rowing uh, that that gives you a greater appreciation uh, too. Yeah, it's just I, great fun. I remember when I told you about the, the beach umbrella. No, um, no, what was that story? Didn't I ever tell you about that? No. Oh well, I got my first boat when I was about twelve, and it was a big, heavy wooden boat. But I could row. I can still row all day, every day. I I think rowing's good fun. But um. When I was young, and see, my parents never worried about me. Uh, if I was 12 and in the boat and gone down the river that, by myself, that was never a problem. So what I did do is I could see that I'd like to go further afield. And I didn't want to row because I thought, well, you know, then I've got to row home. So what Mrs. Moffat, my mate's mother, uh, had an old beach umbrella that she was sending to the tip. And I asked her, could I have it? And then what I did do was that I could row to where I wanted to go. If I wanted to go further, I could open the beach umbrella and then blow. The wind would blow me to where I wanted to go. But I always kept in mind that the tide was going to turn. So I could go I could go two or three kilometres from home in a rowboat using the <laughs> beach umbrella. And then maybe if the wind changed, I could use it for the way home. So I used it for years, this whole, until it went rotten, and, and then I only had the frame of it, which was no good. <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah. But, oh, that beach umbrella took me miles and miles, you see? Wow. So, that, you know, rely on, start using your brain, because otherwise it'll shrink. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. fair enough, too. Use it or lose it. Uh, Stinker, yeah. I'm glad you didn't end up like Mary Poppins in a westerly and uh, fly yeah. to New Zealand. Uh, good fun, yeah. good fun, mate. Great talking to you. You've got a, a great philosophy on life and, and fishing. Catch you next time on The Big Fish. All right, Scott. 
This is The Big Fish with Scott Levi on ABC Radio. Our man on the mid-north coast, Cole, the waymaster, Trenaman. Welcome back, Treno. Good morning, Scotty. You've come out of hibernation like a big bear, and I noticed that you posted a pic, a catch-and-release pic, of course, of your PB big flathead, a big girl of 88 centimetres, 12 short of your century. Uh, you'll, you'll get that metre one. Do you think you'll get that metre one day? Oh, I'd like to, mate. I'd like to. A bit like Glenn McGrath. Too short, only made two. He's ninety-eight short of his century. <laughs> the famous Rich, Rich, Richie Benno, didn't he? He say, "There's Glenn McGarr out for two ninety-eight short of his century." That's the one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so did she go back? None the worse for wear. None the worse for wear, mate. The uh, uh, that was for lures, by the way, and not not live baits. My best one's ninety-eight on baits, but um, she went back on uh, yeah, caught on a, a bent minnow. Gee, they're good lures, aren't they? Those bent minnows, mate. I tell you what, I'm, I'm, I tell you what. If anyone follows me, mate, I'll be selling all my glide baits. I think I don't think I'll be going down that road anymore. I'm going to stay with bent minnows. I reckon they're just awesome. Yeah, and they're a bit of a, a, a each way bet, aren't they? On a surface lure and an underwater lure. Well, I find they work great with a lot of other fish, bass especially. Uh, brim when they don't want a surface lure, but they want something that'll annoy the bejeebies out of it. That's what they take. It's a bent minnow. Yeah, Bushy loves them too on the south coast. They are dynamite on the big, mm. wily black brim of, of those estuaries and the flathead and everything, really everything, loves the bent. We know that oh, yeah, the, Jap- the Japanese are pretty clever, aren't they? Yes, they are. I'll be, I'll be fair, they are. But uh, there's um, the, the old bents, mate, they've, um, they even catch trout. There you go, redfin. I've got a mate of mine that goes out to uh, a little dam out near Armidale there. And it's got trout, red fin, and yellows and silvers in it. And he only takes one lure, or he takes two or three of the same lure, which is a white uh, 70, I think it's a 78, 78 mil uh, bent minnow. And uh, that's all he uses. He catches trout, he catches his red fin, he gets his silvers on it, gets his yellow belly on it. Mm. Uh, horses for courses, obviously, they're a very shallow running lure, and they'll, they'll pop to the top and then wiggle underneath and then pop up. Uh, what sort of retrieve do you like with them? Uh, I like, well, I get them down, try and get them down first. Like, I'll give them a couple of big, uh, big whacks with the rod to get them down a little bit and then just let them come up. And as they, just before they hit the surface, just a little tweak and another little tweak, another little tweak, and then I let them come up, sit on the surface and count to 10, flat, or count to 10, and then go through it again. It's usually that pause that'll get you your flathead because he's in behind it watching and all of a sudden it'll go to the surface and sit down because it's bent and it's laying there like a, a dead fish or a, a dying fish and give it a little tweak, whack. And what sort of uh, depths of water will they work for on those big flathead? Will they bring them up from way down, or is it sort of five foot or so? No, it, it sort of it sort of suits the way that I fish and what I, the depth I like to fish. Anything from say five hundred five hundred mil down to about one point five meters, because you can you can actually if you get it right, you can actually get them down two or three foot, which is you know a fair way down in the water column, and then keep them down there. Just keep tweaking them while they're down there, depending on. You can put those little sticky weights on them just to get that little bit slower uh, retreat. Yeah, they're more about rod rod action, though, aren't they? They're all about it working is, the rod tip. It is. If you keep the rod tip up, they'll flip along on the surface like a little mullet or something like that. But if you've rod tip down as if you're, just say you're doing uh, jerk baiting with suspending lures, and, and, the, and it's a very similar action to that, and then uh, that's what happens with those. And it, it, that keeps it down. And I just sort of get it down. And because the other day, it was, it was really amazing. Because um, I, when I threw it out, I saw the swirling behind the lure, and I could actually watch it come up and grab it, 
and the border was that clear in about four or five, four to four and a half metres of water, I could actually watch the whole fight. Ah, oh, that's very exciting, isn't it? And Flathead do have eyes on the top of their head, so they're looking up, and these, these fish on, on the surface or just under the, the surface, mm-hmm. uh, that's a, a great capture, mate, a beautiful big lizard. Well, well done uh, over the sand flats? No, mate, it was along a rock wall, believe it or not. Oh, I, right. I, I've, I've been along this... Well, a lot of people don't know my fishing will know where I fish, and I've actually spotted them of the night laying up right up hard within a, within a, within a foot of the, the surface on the rock wall just laying there, and I'm talking big girls. Lying, lying on the rocks? Laying on the rocks, just looking up there. So, you know, all these boys that are up there fishing in deep water for them, well, mate, yeah. I'd change my mind if I was there. That's a really interesting observation because so many of us think that flatheads sit on or in the sand camouflage to suit the environment, can't they? Well, that's correct, mate. As, you know, they'll go that motley colour, especially if they're sitting in amongst weed and rock and stuff like that. They can go the same colour as the bottom. And if they sort of blend in, it takes a little bit uh, to actually spot the big girls when they're sitting there in between clumps of weed. And you go, oh, and like I've seen a couple of absolute horses there, and they'd be, I've never caught a metre, I've got close to it. <laughs> but um, I reckon these were over a metre or thereabouts. That's great observation, Treno. That really is smart fishing. And, and uh, everyone knows a good fisher person uses their eyes. And to, to go and spot those fish in that habitat, when we all think they're on the sand, to see them sitting up in the rocks on, a, on the rock wall and, and ambushing bait fish like that, well, well done, mate. You thoroughly deserve your rewards. Anything else on on the mid-north coast before we let you go? Oh, mate, the bass are back. You know, my second favourite fish of all time, the bass are ran and and I had a nice little session. I had an absolutely glorious week this, this last week, mate. I went out on Monday night. And I got me, nailed myself a 90-odd centimetre Jew for dinner. And I went up and got that big cup flatties and a few others just buggerising around on the in the boat. And then uh, I went up and got myself 35-odd bass. The best was 48 centimetres. Of course, all caught and released. No, of course, all caught and released. Only one that uh, did, uh, one that was uh, joined me in a photo. And I was told that I looked very old by a few people that did comment on <laughs> Hey, tight lines, our man on the mid-north coast. Thanks for joining us again on The Big Fish. No worries, Jimmy. I'll talk to you later. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.